I think a lot of people give people way too many chances who are just not meant for that lifestyle. There are people that are just not coachable and there are people who want it without wanting to do what, what is required to achieve it. And you could put it on a silver platter in front of them and say, here, do this, do that. You will, if you do X and you get, and you, you do Y, you will get Z and they will not do X and they will not do Y. They will not get Z and then Welcome to the Freedom Chasers Podcast, where we bring you interviews and discussions that share the stories, successes, goals, and dreams of real estate agents and real estate investors pursuing a life of purpose and freedom. All right. Today, we're here with Ernst Achildiev. He is with eXp Realty. He is a real estate broker. He specializes in multifamily, two units plus in New York. So Ernst, we'd love to kick it off with a story, man. Can you tell us one of your craziest experiences working multifamily in the biggest city in America? Yeah, absolutely. So working multifamily in New York City, you know, you're we're going to be working with a lot of tenants and a lot of tenant related issues. Um, one of the one of the ones that really stick out in my head right now is one where I listed a property. It was a two family property and one of the units was occupied uh, and there was a tenant in there and the tenant actually passed away and uh, while the property was listed. And since they were the only ones that lived in the apartment, uh, no one else could have uh, legally entered um, for about 30 days. And um, because with that to find who can claim possessions of their property. And for that reason, uh, that property had to uh, uh, pretty much come off the market. And I ended up losing the listing because of that. Yeah, that's crazy. So tell us a little bit more about yeah. your journey into real estate. Like, so what got you in? What did you do before? Well, I actually uh, got my license straight out of, straight out of school, straight out of college. Um, I was a 22 year old kid. I didn't really know what, what I was going to do next. I was considering going to law school. Uh, but I, I, and I also kind of got into, you know, the personal development stuff, personal development books. And I was like, you know what? I just want to be really successful. And, you know, we never know how we're going to achieve success. Uh, it could be through many avenues. So I just kind of got the idea to, to try real estate. I knew that to, um, I knew that to, to become wealthy, you just had to make um, large sums of money um, fairly, fairly quickly, or, or so I thought. So I was like, well, I know that, I know that real estate is like a high, high ticket sales game. So I was like, okay, if I'm starting with nothing, that's probably my, my best bet. So I went and I got my license and, uh, and pretty much went nowhere for about a year or two. I wasn't making much money at all, but that, that didn't, uh, that didn't lead me to quit. Thankfully, it's 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 mainly because of the vision. So if you if you have the vision, you'll be okay. Um, I love that, and I love your honesty there. So, like, tell me about this two year experience where you probably ran into a lot of failure. Like, what was your mindset like, yeah. and how did you get through that so that you finally did get that property? Sure. So when I began, so in New York City, New York City is a very unique market, both for property and for real estate agents. So in, in New York City, a lot of newer agents, they they make their first money doing apartment rentals because we have so many renters in this, in this area. So that's pretty much what I was taught to do off the bat. Just go and do rentals to show apartments. Uh, you could make fairly decent money doing rentals. There's people, There are agents that have been doing this for 10 years and they're still making their bread and butter off rentals. They make six figures just renting apartments. Uh, so I started doing that, but I knew I wanted to get into sales. So my first two years, all I did was was rentals and I wasn't making much money at all, maybe like 40, 50 K a year just to cover my expenses. So, you know, I, I needed, I needed help. I didn't really have a mentor. 
Uh, I didn't know how to get into the multifamily uh, game pretty much. I knew I wanted to own multifamily property. I just didn't know how I was going to get the money to do so. And, you know, I figured that if I start making a lot of money, I will start selling multifamily first, then I can make some money to buy the multifamily. I just knew that I was going to, I wanted to get into that field. That's awesome. Um, yeah. And then I started meeting a lot of landlords when I, when I was, when I was doing rentals, I started meeting a lot of landlords who were, who, who already went through that, went, went through buying their first multifamily properties. And, and that, and I believe it or not, I actually got a lot of my mentorship from some of my clients on the go. Oh yeah. I believe it. So I'm curious. Um, why did you want to go multifamily from the beginning? Mm -hmm. So it doesn't sound like you really wanted to be a residential agent. So I've always, I was always very fascinated by the idea of investing. Uh, ever since middle school, I've researched uh, stocks and I researched how the stock market works. You know, living in New York City, we're like in the center of it. And uh, I started reading books by like Robert Kiyosaki, like when I was in middle school, um, you know, rich dad, poor dad. And I even remember doing a six, uh, a seventh grade report, a how-to report. It was on how to invest in stocks. You know, so you know, we had um, kids in my class who were like, "Why, why would you care how to invest in stocks? You're like 12 years old, 13 years old." And I was like, "Well, I just find it fascinating." And uh, the teacher, that it was an English class, and the teacher actually said, "Well, you know what? If I see him driving in a nice car one day, I guess we'll know why, because you know he's been interested in this uh, for a pretty early age." But I didn't make my, my, my money in the stock in the stock market, but um, I definitely do, you know, put some of it there. It's not doing so well right now, but got to hold on. Yeah. I just wanted to answer your, your the second part of your question. Why, why multifamily? It's because I found that multifamily had to do a lot with numbers, investing and returns. And I was always fascinated by that. And I thought that, well, um, multifamily investment can give you a much more predictable return actually than, than, uh, than, than the stock market can you know if, if you can expect a 10 percent return let's say a 12 percent return from uh from holding the um from holding the s&p 500 stock um well some years it doesn't do so well like you know we've erased two years of gains right now but with multifamily you can be pretty sure you're gonna get you know six percent or eight percent return because you know as long as your tenants are going to pay rent which is i think it, which, which I think is a lot more probable than the stock market doing well all the time. hundred percent agree. When you look at the totality, you've got the six to 8%, which, you know, in other parts of the country, it's a little bit more, but six to 8% there in New York. Then you've mm -hmm. got the fact that if you look at any mm -hmm. hundred year period or even 10, 20 year period, you're talking about four plus percent appreciation. And so tack on, I mean, like when you look at stocks, you got the appreciation of the stocks and the dividends, right? That's what I find so fascinating is most of the time when we're calculating real estate, we're calculating the return based on the dividend, not even the asset appreciation. And the asset appreciation sometimes in certain market yep. cycles is is in line with what the stock appreciation is. So the, plus, not to mention the tax advantages of real estate. So mm -hmm. yeah, like, dude, I'm, I'm all in on what you're saying. So I want to tie back to some of the things. I want to go back to the, the young Ernst. Um, and so you have this vision early on that you want to be in stocks. You kind of mentioned it's something that fascinated you, but I, I want to go a little bit deeper than that. Did it fascinate you because the idea of being financially successful fascinated you or did it fascinate you because you just like fast moving things and numbers and so on and so forth? I think it was the idea of financial freedom was definitely a big part of it. You know, I'm not going to lie. I'm not going to lie about that. I didn't, I didn't grow up wealthy. I don't come from a uh, well-off 
of a soup. My, you know, my, my, my parents are, are both uh, middle class. And, uh, you know, middle class for New York City is not enough. So, I, you know, I, I, I never I, I never really had uh, everything that I dreamed for. I had everything that I wanted. didn't have everything that I dreamed for. So I, that definitely was a big uh, motivating factor. Uh, I also love I also love the way that if you do your homework in the stock market, um, if you do your homework well enough, you will get rewarded for it. And you're also and and also I think the idea of investing in like America, like in some of these companies that you're investing in, like Coca Cola or Walmart, or you know all these uh, or even McDonald's, like you're investing in American history, like you becoming you're becoming a part owner in American, like an Americana pretty much. And like that to me that was really really cool as a kid. That's awesome. So, so basically just to dive into this a little bit further. So, so you go down the, the financial path and, and I've written some questions down. One of the things you said earlier was you, th- you had to have a lot of money or so you thought implying you don't have to yes. have as much money as you thought. And this is kind of a, a very crux position that Tim and I also hold. So I'd like you to dive into that and, and give us your insight. Sure. Well, um, what I what I originally thought is if I if I if I'm going to be very wealthy or wealthy, I have to find out how to make a lot of money quickly. Uh, that's not necessarily true. I would say it depends on your time frame. I think it depends on how much money you can put aside and not spend, and if you can uh, correctly reinvest that into something, especially that 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 flows like cash flows, dividends, or rental income that will add up very, very quickly. And that snowball effect um, will definitely be achieved and, and you'll be uh, you'll be very, very well off within like, uh, like 10, 15, even 20 years. Uh, and if you start young, like I, was, I started young. So for me, um, I definitely had a, a very long time horizon. Well, at least now I do, much longer than I used to. That was a little more impatient than I am now. Um, but yes, uh, in the investment part, you don't usually, you don't really, well, in New York City, you kind of do need a good amount of money to invest because nobody, nobody's really going to entertain an FHA loan for a multifamily property uh, in a good part of town. You know, there's just too much money here to entertain that. In other parts of the country, absolutely. In other parts of the country, if you have a VA loan, if you have an FHA loan, absolutely. Uh, you don't need much money at all. You can, you can buy your first multifamily property. Even with no money down, I, I heard stories, maybe $5,000, $10,000. It's nothing at all. Yeah, absolutely. And there's so many creative financing strategies and things of that nature. Um, you said something really cool earlier that really caught my attention. So you said you were looking for financial freedom mm-hmm. um, when, you got, when you got into the real estate field. So like, what does financial freedom mean to you? Sure. My financial freedom means you, you can wake up in the morning and, and do, do what you do because you want to, not because you have to. You know, I think that's probably the simplest uh, definition of financial freedom. Financial freedom also means you can, um, if you want to buy a certain car, if you want to, if you want to go on a certain vacation, uh, if you want to fly, fly, you know, whether you're going to go first class or coach, it's up to you. It's your decision. You know, you don't have to think about, okay, how much money is this going to cost me? Will I be able to pay for this if I do this? Um, I, I, you know, financial that financial freedom means not having to make those choices between leisurely pleasure or uh, uh, paying for uh, stuff as a responsible adult, like at the very minimum, very basically. Yeah, I love that definition. I have a fascination with studying different markets across the country. 
And so I live in California. I've bought in, you know, I don't know the exact number of markets, call it half a dozen markets. And so it's just been really fun. I probably studied a half a dozen more than that. And it's really fun to see really the pros and cons, the benefits of every market. It seems like every market can bring you such a different thing for your portfolio. And I imagine New York is no exception mm-hmm. to that. So if you can give us yeah. a 10 to 30, we'll call it 30 second to one minute elevator pitch. Why would somebody benefit from buying multifamily in New York? Absolutely. And I will tell you exactly why. There's actually several reasons. But the first one is we have one of the lowest continuous vacancy rates throughout in any metropolitan city throughout the country. Uh, the past 100 years, we're averaging out about 3% vacancy rate steadily without any, any decline. Uh, another one is we are the major hub of so many um, so many industries. So we always have people flooding in here who need to rent apartments. We have people making multiple six figures who are renting apartments for ten, twenty thousand dollars a month. They're not even thinking of buying because they want to stay mobile. They're just here for work. So there's always going to be a market for luxury rentals. There's always there's always going to be a market for, you know, your rent stabilized apartments are always going to be full. And that's also another part of New York City. Many people don't understand we have a huge a million rent stabilized apartments in New York City. And those tenants aren't going anywhere because the, the deal is too good to be true. So in short, we have no no pro- we never have problems with vacancy here. And not just in the good markets, but in the bad in the bad real estate markets as well. So it's extremely predictable return here. That's wonderful. Um, so cool. I mean, what's the difference? I know you probably deal with a lot more in terms of tenancy mm-hmm. laws and things of that nature. I know on the pre-call, you mentioned that um, some ancient World War II laws still yeah. in effect in, in New York, and it's only in effect there. Yeah. So we could, can we talk about the differences of investing in your market in, in opposed to most other markets? Sure. So, so, so it's a law that was passed. This was called the, the Federal Rent Control Law. Was passed. It was it was signed by uh, Franklin D. Roosevelt, I believe, 1942 during World War II. So it was to offset, pretty, like it was an emergency anti-price gouging on, on on rents, kind of federal act. So it was done on a federal level. So you know, after the war ended in the 50s and 60s, most of the country shed shed those laws because free market came back. Uh, you know, uh, uh, construction boomed. We we had a huge addition to the supply of housing. But in New York City, we actually. Uh, that law didn't get repealed. So all of the, all of the property that was built prior to that time, rent control, uh, remained rent controlled and rent stabilized. So right now, if you have a property that's over six units and it was built prior to 1974, chances are your unit is rent stabilized. And there's very little thing, very little you can do to, to get it to free market, especially after 2019, we had a set, we had a law that was passed to eliminate a lot of the loopholes that we had to, de- to deregulate those apartments. Uh, so this is not really seen anywhere else in the country that I know of, which is why you know anyone that's buying in New York City has to be very, very well uh, nuanced on this. Uh, otherwise they, they can really go uh, buy something that they don't want or at a cap rate, that's not worth it. Because we have- Yeah, that was a very important point. Yeah. So could we get into the details of what the rent stabilization means? Sure. Um, so that the audience could have a better idea. Yeah, absolutely. So we have something called uh, RGB, the Rent Guidelines Board. Uh, their job every year in the summertime, they hold hearings as to uh, what percentage to allow landlords to raise a one-year lease and a two-year lease for to existing tenants. So usually that can range anywhere from zero to 4% of the gross rent. Okay. So during COVID, 
it was actually zero. So if you had to renew a lease uh, on a one-year lease, a zero increase for two years. Now they came out, I believe it's uh, 4%. So it's huge. They're trying to make up for, for what they took away back, back then. But the biggest hindrance is that the tenant has a million times more rights than a landlord does in a rent-stabilized apartment. Uh, meaning the tenant has the first right of refusal for uh, a lease renewal. So even if you have a terrible tenant, you cannot say, I'm not going to renew your lease. They have a, 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 the tenant can actually choose whether they want a one or a two-year renewal. So even if they're not paying you rent, you still have to renew their lease. Now, what you could do is you can go to court and evict them for that, for not paying you rent. But that's going to take you right now one to three years to evict them, even if they're not paying you rent. Yeah. So okay. it's not really seen in many places in the country. <laughs> I was about to say, you just gave me a lot of good reasons not to buy in New York City. I did. I did. So, <laughs> like, so, <laughs> like, um, so, yeah, I mean, like, let's talk about the benefits, though, besides um, the rental absorption rate is absolutely high, um, mm -hmm. which is awesome. Like, but what other benefits are there to New York? Sure. Apart from, you know, being the biggest city that has drawing the most population in the whole country. We have what what we have is um, extremely good price appreciation. Even even the bad markets like 2008, uh, you can check it out. 2008, New York City didn't really get hit price wise because our rents didn't get hit because the cap rates didn't change. That those renters were in place. So it's it's investing in New York City is like buying a bond in real estate, but it's better than a bond. It's like buying a bond that yields you 5%, let's say, which you could not get uh, before 2022. Bonds were yielding you like maybe zero to 2%. But it's like buying a bond that yields you 5% a year and you know the, the money you put into that property is safe or at least as safe as it can be. Uh, you know, if you invested in Detroit, uh, Detroit had a, the reason Detroit had a boom, for, for instance, is because they had the auto industry and they were heavily dependent on the auto industry. San Francisco right now has insane valuations, but has a lot to do because of Silicon Valley and tech. What happens if Silicon Valley decides to pick up and move somewhere else? They have nothing to fall back on. Absolutely nothing. I mean, a, a lot of those areas, a lot of those areas that are renting and selling for in, in insane amounts of money right now, before that, there were, uh, uh, um, for example, uh, Facebook's uh, headquarters in Menlo Park. That was a low-income area. That was a low-income area. And, and, and the only reason it went up is because of, of Facebook. So if Facebook decides to pick up and leave, that area, is, there's, nothing, there's nothing to catch that fall. In New York City, any company can, can pick up and leave. Any industry can pick up and leave, and we'll still be okay because we, have, uh, we still have 100 more to take its place. So, and I want to tap down on this, kind of going back and forth. I guess Tim and I are default playing good cop, bad cop. So, it's like a bond because it's low, low yep. rate, but you're likely to get it ninety-seven percent plus occupancy rate. But what's the occupancy that's actually paying? I mean, like, I'm just thinking about this from a tenant perspective. If I can go into a property and I was the one type, like, like, let's say I was the type of person looking to take advantage of the system. I go into property, I don't pay. I know they can't get me out for one to three years. Yeah, they'll put a judgment on me after I go, but I don't have the money, so I'll never pay it. In the situation for the landlord, they're they're gonna buy a property, they'll have all the expenses of it for three years with no income. Like how long is that gonna mm -hmm. take that sure. landlord to ever, if they ever recoup their money? 
Mm-hmm. So surprisingly, the so so this only though so this only applies to rent stabilized units which are in buildings of six plus units. I want to make that distinction. This doesn't apply. I mainly buy uh, two to four family units which are free market. So there's no one telling me I have to renew their lease. Uh, the ones that I buy work exactly like they do in the rest of the country. Eviction process will take as long though. A li- a, it'll be a little a little easier if they don't have a, if they're not a rent stabilized tenant. They will be evicted uh, quicker than a rent stabilized tenant. But still, right now it's going to be six months to a year. Gotcha. Uh, so what the incentive would be for for the rent stabilized tenant to pay is because most rent stabilized tenants have been in their uh, units for 10, 20, 30 years, and they don't want to lose that unit. Because you can't really find any more of them right now. Nobody, nobody ever moves out of them. So yes, yes, there are some who are like, you know what, we're moving out of New York anyway. Let's just stay for like one or two years for free. But anyone who plans on staying here, they're not going to want to lose that privilege of having that apartment because they're not going to be able to get another one. Because if that eviction judgment goes on their record, who's really going to want to rent rent an, another rent stabilized tenant or another apartment? to them in this city because right now uh, background checks are done very very thoroughly here because of the whole covid thing um you know a lot of landlords have been uh, have been burned with that so now they're like you know what i'm going to be super super strict with who i let into my apartment got it so for you let's let's take this back to you personally so you got young ernst he's got all the energy behind his yeah. sales he's running hard he's growing his business wants to become a passive income billionaire uh so he can ascend ascend the ladder. You got these assets there that are, are having these very small cap rates. So they're very secure, but they're not the type that are going to grow your wealth tremendously at first. And they're probably going to cost mm-hmm. you a pe- pretty penny to get into them. So kind of break down maybe the strategies that you're using. How are you growing your wealth in this type of environment? Sure. So the thing with New York City is when you're buying the property, the cap rate may be on the lower side, a free market property, uh, a smaller one. So maybe uh, five to 6% when you're buying it. But rents have grown so quickly here and they grow so quickly that anyone who's bought uh, their property five years ago, let's say, um, rents have grown 40 to 50% since then across the board for free market units. So if they bought at a 5% cap, right now their cap on the price they purchased at is probably like 15%. You know, so... It, 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 it does catch up. So buying in New York City is definitely a long-term play, minimum five years to see any kind of like decent cash flow. But at the same time, because those rents are going up so quickly and cap rates stay low, the price of your property grows very quickly. Because because if I purchased a property, let's say, if I, let's say I purchased a two-family, very realistic numbers. Let's say I purchased a two-family property five years ago, the same unit, the rent was $2,000. Now that same unit is going to be minimum three thousand to thirty five hundred dollars, and that's across the board. That's without me having to do any kind of extension, extensive renovations, and it could even be the same tenants who would who would pay that much more just to stay in that apartment. So okay, it, very cool. It's yeah, um, it's pretty much safety. Uh, I know the market very well. Like I know what to buy and what not to buy because I. For you know, for my first five years, I've advised others on the same thing, and I've actually been taught by master investors, who I happen to show properties to as, as a broker, and they were like, "Well, I wouldn't buy this because of this, or I wouldn't buy that because of that. I, I want to buy this, and I want to buy this because of this and because of this." And I was like, "Okay," so I was constantly taking mental notes. 
I didn't tell them, oh, thanks for teaching me that because I'm a new broker and I, don't, and I don't know them. I told them, okay, cool. Yeah, that makes sense. And so I kind of made those notes in my head. And I think if I was not a, if I, if I wasn't a broker first and I just, and if I made my money, let's say in finance or in law or in medicine, anything else, and I chose to put my money into it, I really wouldn't know where to start in New York City because it is really, really a, a, a jungle out there. There's so much, so variety of property out here. And the laws vary very greatly on depending on what you're looking at. Okay. So this brings me a great question. Yeah. Like what are the red flags you're looking for then in the properties? Like what, what is the criteria? What is your buy box? And what is the buy box that you're sharing with your clients? Sure. So you have to know more, more important than a cap rate. You have to know the neighborhood you're buying in. You have to know how, how, you know, you, you want to try to buy near transportation. Public transportation is huge for, for workers, especially workers who, who work downtown, who work in the city, they need a reliable way to get around. So you want to buy around transportation. So the, uh, that's a big buy box. You want to uh, buy, I think, uh, brick buildings are a lot better than frame buildings out here. They always tend to appreciate better. Uh, they're just much more desirable. Uh, if a property has a garage, that's even that's even better because parking is is uh, it, it's a nightmare in New York City. So if you have garage spots, uh, garage rentals, you can get like five six hundred dollars for a single uh, garage spot, pretty much for one car, and they always appreciate as fast as apartments do. So it's like kind of like a an extra asset. Um, what I look for is are if I'm going to buy a property, I will always try to buy it vacant. So very very different to the rest of the country where everyone wants tenants in place and people are advertising, oh, we have a 40-unit building with tenants in place. Out here, it's like, I don't want tenants in place. I can get my own tenants. A lot of times when they sell the property, such a big property, so many tenants in place, probably uh, some of them aren't paying and they're going to be headaches. You know, And if I can get if I can get the tenants out, that's why I buy smaller ones. So if I buy like a two or three-unit building, I can buy it vacant or I can, or I'll settle for like a one with a tenant who they could show me uh, and I ch uh, checked at least six months of their past uh, rent payments. Uh, uh, there's a form here. It's called the TEC tenant estoppel certificate, which I would ask my attorney to have, uh, to have the other side have the tenant sign, which states that they don't, that they hold the current landlord harmless. They have no claims against him. I don't inherit a mess then because we go to housing court and they say, well, it was that landlord, but now he's the landlord, so I'm going to hold him accountable as well. Uh, judges are, are very ruthless against landlords in the city. So if a property is vacant, it's a clean slate. I know at least a tenant issue is not going to be an issue for me. And I'm, pretty, I'm a pretty good judge of character on um, vetting tenants because I, I did this for like the, per, the first two, three years. All I did was like renting apartments. Uh, yeah. So I know exactly how to vet, vet tenant application. I know exactly the questions to ask them. I know exactly how to spot red, red flags from tenants, uh, inconsistencies that are going to be red flags. I would say 98 to 99% of the apartments that I've rented as, as an agent my first two years that I've helped get into apartments, I can't remember a single time the landlord calling me after and saying, oh, you remember that person you rented to? They stopped paying rent or, or something oh. like that. So. Yeah, so like that's Pretty another side of the of yeah yeah uh, that that's another that's another side of the uh, of the of the of, of of the puzzle that I've kind of helped decipher by being an agent first. So it kind of all fell into place backwards. So now, so I realized how to properly vet and, and maybe the right way. Yeah. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah. And honestly, I wasn't really planning. Yeah. I mean, when you look at these complex markets, yeah. When you look at these complex markets like LA, Bay Area, New York City, Chicago, et cetera, mm-hmm. like getting getting your feet wet there can, like you said, it, you help avoid all the huge mistakes. Mm-hmm. So what I'd like to do, because I've never invested in New York City, give us a picture. And this is a picture I want you to paint. How much money would it take? How quickly could I do it? Well, let me ask you one question first. How much per month would I probably need to have coming in passively to live a decent life, a retired life in New York City? Is that 15 a month, 20 a month, 25 a month? Yeah, that number varies greatly, as you can imagine, because it depends on where do you want to sure. where do you want to go out to eat? Do you want to go out to get a regular place or do you want to go out to eat where the rich people go where you got to spend at least a thousand, two thousand dollars let's say, let's say on dinner? So like upper middle class. Okay. Uh, passively, like probably at least 10 to 15,000. Yeah. So let's go 15,000. So what I want you to do for us, Ernst, tell me how much money do I got to come up with? How fast? What's the fastest way in New York City to go from zero to 15K? High commission sales. If, if you don't have like a law degree or if you're not a doctor or if you're not like a surgeon or something. Yeah. High commission sales. High commission sales. So you'd say I go high commission sales. I bank the commissions after taxes. I put them as down payments. How much money do I need to stack in the bank to be able to put the down payments down to get the 15K passive? Oh, geez. That's uh, 15K passive after mortgage expenses and everything. It's going to be at, le- at least a, like probably like at least 500K, uh, probably a million actually. A million's not bad because if you're looking at a million bucks, actually more. I'm sorry, fifteen k a I'm, month is one hundred and eighty thousand. You're right. At our cap rates, I never, I never. Sorry I ne- to put you on the mathematical. I never spot. thought of it that way because nobody ever phrased. Uh, none of my clients ever phrased the question to me that way. If I had a pen and paper, I would definitely be able to tell you. Uh, do the math with the cap rates and the down sure. payments. Now it depends on how much down payment are you going to put. Are you going to buy a commercial property? If you're doing a commercial property, you need totally. at least interest rates, etc. Thirty percent down yep. minimum, thirty five percent down. Versus if I buy like a couple of uh, two or three families, you know, I, I can do 10 to 20% conventional. Um, so I, I would say actually definitely over a million dollars, like significantly over a million dollars actually. Yeah. Yeah. Cause if let's say somebody's netting 5%, 5% say on a million dollars is going to be 50,000 a year. So we got to get to like three, a little right. over three and a half times that. Mm-hmm. So probably like three to five million, maybe. Yep. Mm-hmm. That uh, okay. Yeah, that 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 sounds more more right. And then it also depends on how quickly your 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 taxes are going to go up, how, how quickly the rents are going to go up. There's a lot. There's a lot of play. Obviously, I'm I'm kind of overthinking it right now. But I think uh, I think your number your number is is very good. Yeah, let's go with three to five million. Yeah, I just think about this all the time because like our goal here at the Freedom Chasers podcast is to help people become free. And so I'm thinking about what is the most simple, fastest way, et cetera. Like a lot of the things that we do too is like creative financing. Like, is it possible in New York City to go get a seller to seller finance you a deal? You wouldn't want that deal if they if they wanted if they were gonna do that. It's probably something horrifically wrong with the property. Yeah. Um, even wholesaling is incredibly hard. I got really lucky on one deal I was able to wholesale. Reason being why both sides require attorneys to represent them. And most seller attorneys would not want you to transfer the contract. And the default New York, the New York State and New York City uh, sales contract says, uh, I believe it's the 23rd uh, paragraph, it says this contract is not transferable. So in order for you to want to wholesale it, 
you have to uh, send out a rider to the other attorney. Uh, and it's it, very, very rare for, for the other side to agree to that. This is not, this is not really one yeah, of those markets so where you can do uh, a lot of those uh, really good things that you can do with when you have no money other than like sell property pretty much, which is, which is, it's a great market for that. So this is really a market where you're not really going here to get rich quick, like maybe some of these other markets. This mm -hmm. is really a market to take wealth that you've already accumulated and to grow it stably yeah. as far as its income generation per year and, and have pretty decent growth of the equity itself. So the equity will grow steadily. The income will be small. You're not likely to lose much of it. Mm -hmm. But this is probably not someone that's like, hey, I'm trying to kick my nine to five. Let's go to New York City and start buying some multifamily. hundred percent. Definitely not. Um, I would recommend emerging markets much more for that. New York City is not an emerging market. That's the issue. You know, and I, and I think because it's not an emerging market is it's why uh, it makes investing into it so safe. It has a lot of old money in the market. And old money is not easily spooked by a downturn in the economy. So, you know, old money and foreign money. Yeah, um. absolutely. Absolutely. Yes. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, we had the, we had the huge downturn in 2008. Uh, you know, people, unless, unless they got uh, squeezed out of it, like, you know, like a short squeeze, let's say uh, pretty much if they were over leveraged, uh, that's when they had to sell. But other than that, you just didn't see the panic out here in the real estate market. You saw the panic out here on Wall Street because the stock market was, was, was going down like heavily at that time. But, you know, homeowners and people like investors, they weren't really panicked, you know, because a lot of them, a lot of them saw the same thing happen in the, in the eighties at that time as well. Cause we, and by the way, most of our property owners are definitely older, especially investors are definitely, definitely older. So if you're in the investing game, the average age of your friends is probably going to be like in the fifties or sixties. Or 70s yeah that makes sense yeah. um so cool i mean you just kind of define what the, the the investor market looks like so you're obviously your broker as well so i'm mm -hmm. curious like what kind of strategies did you use in order to meet these investors so that you could start working from them in a brokerage capacity as yeah. well so luckily i i started doing this business like many other uh, agents in new york city was doing rentals and when you're uh, renting apartments you're usually going to meet the owners of those rental apartments who are the landlords and the investors. Um, so by doing those rentals, I was able to uh, create relationships and I did right by the landlords and they, and they really appreciated the way I worked with them. And not really none of them even uh, suspected that I was a new agent. Uh, it, it really just depends on how you, how you, how you carry yourself, how you bring yourself across and, and how seriously you take this because we have some, some people that, that do this business and they act like a summer intern pretty much. And most of them do just last a, a few months. This is a very brutal market for new agents. Yeah. So, uh, so by, by, by uh, doing work for those landlords and investors, I started getting referrals to their other friends that were also landlords and investors. It's pretty much the same person, landlord and investors, the same person. Um, so I, I think that's how that's how I got in, like through the brokerage side. I started making relationships on that on the um, on the landlord side and investor side, and learning how to be an investor myself, and also making connections with like commercial lenders as well, and lenders who are very friendly toward investors in New York City because not not many are. Uh, yeah, I, I I would say that the brokerage side helped my uh, shaped my investment side. 
I want to dive in this a little bit because we've literally had questions on this in our group in the last couple sure. of weeks, which is what do you do when you're a new investor? What do you do when you're a new agent? And so I'm really curious about this because you're in a hard market. Like, and I don't want to discredit anybody other market that they're in, but like, I mean, I've been on the phones with a lot like LA and these markets. They're not all the same. Like when I call Oklahoma, because I have a license there, it's very different than when I call LA. And I can only imagine like trying to get business in New York. So the, the level of expectation of these very wealthy, very established, you know, landlords is probably really up yes. there. You're new to this game. Let's dissect a little bit. Like, you know, how are you making this impression, right? I mean, you're still new. So you still have a lot of things you don't know, right? I mean, maybe you're, and it seems like you're very, very, very intelligent. So maybe there's a leaning on that. But if you can articulate as clearly as you can, like, what exactly is it that that made you not seem new right out the bat? Did you fake it till you make it? Did you face it till you make it? How'd you do it? Yeah, so so I think there's there's some very simple things that all agents can uh, can use. Uh, I think responsiveness to your clients is huge. Like you know, put your client first. If your client sends you a text message or calls you, maybe it's a little early in the day. Maybe it's a little late in the day. I mean, investors are very busy people. Most of these people are, you know, our lawyers, our, our doctors. Some of them just do investing, or some of them are old money. So they are used to very, uh, uh, they have a very high expectation to when it comes to to any kind of service. And you're absolutely right. So I started doing that. I started putting the client first. You know, luckily I wasn't. Um, I'm still not married, but I, I I wasn't married. I didn't have any kids. I don't have any kids now either, but I think that was a big plus for me because you know what? If someone, uh, if, if one of my clients texts me or uh, calls me at 8 a.m., I'm picking up the phone. If they call me, uh, have a question about, about the process at, at uh, 9, 30, 10 o'clock, I'm picking up the phone, right? So I think doing this being, um, this is a very simple thing that makes them, that makes uh, your client thinks that you, you have a lot of experience because of the way you're treating them because it's, it's the nuanced things. Also keep them up to date on the entire process. You know, if they give you an exclusive listing to rent their apartment up, you know, you want to update them at least every couple of days, even if there's no movement. Hey, just want to shoot them a quick text. Hey, just want to let you know, I'm showing the property, uh, haven't been much movement. Uh, we may want to consider lowering the price a little bit in a week or something, you know? Um, you know, if, uh, if you just showed the property to a tenant, hey, just want to let you know, I just showed the property to someone uh, and uh, looks like they're interested. They're going to send over the paperwork and I'll let you know once I get it. So you want to keep them updated. Very, very few agents uh, do that uh, in this business. So they're like, hey, uh, no, I don't have anyone for your property yet. Don't bother me until I do. Like that kind of attitude, you know. So once your, your biggest uh, concern first is to just give, make someone give you a chance. Call up for rent by owner. Uh, establish a relationship with them. I'm saying in, mar in my market, I do know that in a lot of markets, doing rentals doesn't pay at all. In the New York City market, uh, we charge a commission of a minimum of one month's rent, usually payable by the tenant. And knowing how high our rents are, we can make pretty decent commission. You know, so my average apartment back when I started, uh, it was like about $2,500, $3,000. So even if I rented like, you know, one apartment a month, on the low end, I was still making like above minimum wage, like as a brand new agent, That's you know, crazy. and like, and yeah. I, I was, I was doing at least like one or one or two apartments a week, you know? So, yeah. Yeah. So you can make really good money. It's possible. So I want to dive in deeper if you'll allow me to, 
because there's some things that might be so natural to you that you don't even think about them that I know are not as natural for other people. So I think this is great. So responsiveness, which is the act of getting back to people when they contact you. Then there's communication mm -hmm. from the standpoint of you are having a cadence, a consistent flow and letting them know what that cadence is of when you're going to contact them and how you're going to contact them. So that's great. But then there's actually the act of communicating itself, right? A lot of new agents are nervous. What happens when most people are nervous? Their voice starts cracking. Their, their voice betrays them. There's a sense they don't know the question, so on and so forth. So I want to know, how was that for you? Did you have like, were you in the closet before you called them and you're like practicing, you know, hearing yourself? Were you recording yourself? Were you going to your broker? How were you training your voice to be confident? How were you preparing yourself? What were your objection handlers when you, when you knew they would ask you a question you had no idea the answer to? How did you prepare yourself that way? Sure. So I, I think I think nervousness comes from uh, not knowing or not thinking you know enough. So definitely educate yourself on what you're doing as much as much as possible. Um, if you want to make as much money as as any good attorney or any good doctor or even more, why should you do that? Not educating yourself when these people have spent hundreds of thousands of dollars in years in school. You know, so I, I think um, even even a young attorney or a young doctor, they will be very nervous seeing their first patients or their first clients or going to go to court the first time. Right. So I think nervousness, you know, in the beginning, it's normal. Um, ultimately, yeah, you, you're going to be nervous until you're not. And then you're still going to be a little nervous, you know. And I, I, I think I think when you start to establish relationships with clients, um, they're going to become not, not really your friends because you still want to treat them as clients. Uh, I mean, at least in New York City, you want that professionalism to continue to to show through that friendly relationship. In other in other places, like in Oklahoma, I'm sure the friendlier you are, the better to them because they oh grab a beer. Yeah, yeah. yeah. No, we're not we're, we're not we're not really doing any alcohol in New York City with clients. I mean, sometimes like it, you know if it's like a client appreciation event or something. Um, but uh, you're you're expected to be uh, pretty buttoned up at at all time, and they they appreciate that because you are their broker. You know, if they want a friend, they have friends. You know, they they want that professionalism from you. Um, and this is just for New York City. I think New York City agents will benefit very very well from from hearing me say this. You know, if you're gonna go see your clients, leave the jeans at home. You know, and, you know, there are certain like uh, even celebrity brokers, I think you may know, uh, who are from New York City. And the reason they do dress the way they dress and they say, this is the reason I do it is to show respect to my client. Uh, you know, it's out of respect for myself, uh, you know, respect my, myself for my client, whatever. It's, it's a market like we have Wall Street here. So people are used to a certain dress. Um, but I, I don't want to go off tangent too much. But yeah, you, you're going to be. You're going to be nervous. You're going to be, it's normal, but the only way to do it is to, the only way to, to reduce your nervousness is, is, is to do it. And I think the act of doing it is the hardest part. And I totally understand that. And I think, and I think that um, getting through that nervousness, what's going to get you there is the vision that you have and the why you have and the goal that you have. So my, my vision and my why was, they were, they were very big. You know, real estate was not something I was trying. Real estate was something that I had to succeed in with the qualifications that I had if I wanted a shot earning the kind of money that I wanted to earn in New York City. 
it's, you know, there's really nothing else I, that I can I do. I love this. I love this because you could have taken a completely different approach. Like you could have taken the approach of I'm single. Yeah. I could get this figured out whenever. Right. But yeah. you committed and that's, that's awesome. And I, and I love how you say respect for the client. Mm -hmm. Like in, in rural California where I live, there's a lot of ag. So if I show up in a, in, in a suit or even sometimes in a, in, you know, just a nice like jacket, like they think I'm the IRS. So, so respect for the client where I live actually happens to be nice jeans in most cases. Like if you go into the best parts of certain things, okay, then maybe you could dress up a little bit and maybe should, but it's, it's very interesting. Like you show up to a dairy property oh, yeah. or something like that, or to a farm, it, it is, it, it's crazy. So I love how you frame it. It's like the suit works in the case where that's, that's a respect for the client. 100%. And so, um, what I want to do now is you've got this big, big, big ambition, this big vision, right? For the finances, the life and the everything. So let's say you attain it. You got a billion dollars in the bank, hundred lifetimes of cash flow. How do you live your life? How do you define your freedom? Um, so at this, I, I think, I think at a certain point and this point is probably nowhere near a billion dollars, you will have to start being motivated by something other than money. And I think people hear people say this so often, but they think, oh, this guy has money. Of course he can say that, right? But honestly, there's only so much money we need to achieve freedom, right? And I think if, and I think um, in New York City, like if you're making a million dollars a year, that's nowhere near a billion dollars, but a million dollars a year, you're financially free in New York City. So, you know, even less than that, like you could probably, it depends on, on, your, on your quality of life you want, but like even like making like three to 500 K, you'll probably have a certain degree of financial freedom as well. Like you don't have to worry about money at that point. Um, so I think for me, I'm going to have to find other ways. Like right now, I definitely, uh, I'd like to mentor newer agents. Uh, I like, to, I like to like in my market, especially ones who want to get into multifamily and get into commercial markets. I just did a class yesterday for an entire office. Uh, I have that on that on um, YouTube actually. Uh, I put it up there. Uh, so that gave me a lot of satisfaction, like going into the the, the mentorship side and, and the teaching side. You know, a lot of people have this have this have this question of, uh, oh, if this person uh, really knew how to do this, they would be doing it and not teaching it, right? So there's only so, so much satisfaction you get from continuing to do something you already know how to do well. Right. There's only so many huge commission checks I can get to keep feeling better. You know, so uh, getting the next like huge commission check or, or buying the next property is not if I found out it doesn't give me as nearly as good enough of a feeling as uh, changing someone's life by teaching them like the skills and how to do things. And especially if they're coachable, that's the best. Like there are people that are just not coachable and there are people who want it without wanting to do what what is required to achieve it and you could put it on a silver platter in front of them and say here do this do that you will if you do x and you get and you, you do y you will get z and they will not do x and they will not do y they will not get z and then they'll quit right so those kind of people i i, I try to kind of weed them out uh, quicker i think a lot of people give people way too many chances who are just not meant for that lifestyle they're not meant to grind they're not meant uh 
to hustle. And maybe it's just because their why is not big enough. Maybe if something really changed in their life tomorrow, their why would just appear out of nowhere. Maybe if they had their first kid, their why would appear out of nowhere. Maybe if they lost their parent, their why would appear out of nowhere. But right now, at this point in their life, a lot of those people, uh, they haven't, they don't have that why. So they're not willing to do the things that are uncomfortable. So until we get to the point where the discomfort, where the pain becomes uh, more painful than the, than the discomfort of doing things that we don't want to do, or the why becomes greater than the discomfort, I don't think we're going we're gonna to do those things. So uh, when I find a person that is very coachable, and there were a few people who have become uh, pretty successful who I, uh, in, my, in, in my field, who I have personally coached since, since they were, I would say, like pretty much brand new agents, just got their license. That makes me so proud. You know, like I would much rather say like, um, I, I want to create and I want to help create more people like that and, and breed success and then having them go and coach uh, people as well. So that way I can kind of multiply my efforts. Um, you know, there's only so many watches you can buy. There's only so many trips you can go on, right? Like I don't have 10 hands to wear 10 different watches at the same time, right? Uh, so, yeah. Totally. You could always come out to California and go to Yosemite together. That, that, yeah. that, <laughs> I, I've actually wanted to go there. That, 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 that's a really, really cool thing to do, I think. I've never been to Yosemite. I think it's awesome. Yeah, definitely a possibility. Open invite, Thank brother. you so much. Thank you, Matt. Hey, anytime yeah, I mean, anytime I you're in New York just... City, I don't know how often you come by here, but but definitely let me know the next time you're here. We'll go to like, uh, they have really nice steak houses here. And, you know, people ask, what should I, I don't know if you eat steak, but I'm sure you do. Yeah. But like, uh, yeah, definitely the steak houses. We have great lounges, stuff like that. Yeah. Awesome places. Oh yeah. We both love steak. Yeah. Um, Tim we'll take you up on that. that. I'm sure we'll be out there eventually. Um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that's great. Yeah. Um, so cool, man. I mean, if the audience wanted to reach out to you, man, what would be the best way for them to do sure, so? Sure, sure. So my handle on Instagram and my email are both the same. They are Best NY Broker. So Best NY Broker is my handle on Instagram, and my email is bestnybroker at gmail.com. Um, that would probably be the best way. And uh, if you just put my name into the Google search engine, a lot of my my Facebook will come out. All that stuff will come out. Yeah, I'll give. I'll. I don't know if I should give my phone number, but I'm sure they can easily find it if, if they wanted to contact me that way. But just DM me uh, on Instagram, Best NY Broker, just as you hear it. No tricky spellings. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> awesome. Definitely man. find me. Um. So Ernst Achildiev, um, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for giving us your time and sharing your your life and your business. Um, and to those of you out there chasing freedom, freedom is acquired one action at a time. So simply commit to taking that action and do so within the next seven days. Tell somebody you know that can hold you accountable. Go and do it. And before you know it, you too will be living the life of freedom. So thank you for tuning in and we'll catch you on the next one.